This is Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow. The holiday season revolves around the dining room table. And as history has shown us, when people sit down to eat, things can get complicated. Take school lunch, a federal program to feed hungry kids. It wasn't an easy sell in the South. They didn't want the federal government to come anywhere near the schools because they really feared, and I think rightly so, that the federal government would begin to dismantle their system of segregation. It would begin to demand some kind of equality. As for the quality of school lunch, well, let's just say history has seen worse. Take train food, for example, in the 1860s. Basically, the food uh, was considered so terrible that the New York Times suggested at one point there was more danger eating the food than there was from train wrecks and fires in the West. The History of Mealtime in America, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. This episode was originally broadcast in 2012. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballard, 20th Century Guy, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. The 19th Century Guy. Peter Onuf, our 18th Century Guy, is out this week, which is actually kind of great just between you and me, because this show in particular is one that I want a little extra share of for myself. <laughs> yeah, Ed, today it's all about the history of meals in America. And we're going to go ahead and start with, well, an outsider's perspective. In the mid-1800s, a lot of high-class Europeans were coming to visit the United States. And one thing quite a few of them seemed to write about was how Americans ate Charles Dickens, among them, described Americans uh, as eating gravely. Nobody says anything at a meal to anybody. Hastily. Every man sits down, dull and languid. Uh, eating food as if they were simply fueling themselves. Swallows his fare as if breakfasts, lunches, and suppers were necessities of nature. Without any kind of semblance of pleasure. Never to be coupled with recreation or enjoyment. Bolting their food and then going off to do something else. This is John Casson, an historian at UNC Chapel Hill and an expert in, among other things, 19th century dining. He says Dickens was shocked at American table manners, or lack thereof. They would eat characteristically then with a two-pronged iron fork and then a knife in the right hand, and they would put the food in their mouths with the knife. Dickens said that he'd never seen such contortions except for a sword swallower in a circus. (laughs) Now, if Dickens had come just a little bit later, however, in the 1870s and 1880s, say, he would have encountered a very different scene. By then, upper-class Americans had picked up on the trends of their European counterparts, and table manners took on a whole new importance. That's right, Ed. There was kind of an arms race based on forks, if you will, and how many (laughs) you could have. And this was born the strange ritual you've probably seen reenacted in countless costume dramas, the Victorian dinner party. 
it's typically going to start with oysters and champagne. And then you're going to have soup, either a white or dark soup. Then an entree of vegetables, perhaps sweet corn or asparagus. And then, are you still with me, Brian? I'm here. And then you will be given a slice of the roast with either claret or champagne. This is moving right along. Now you have the game. And then you have a salad course. Then you have cheese. Then you have pastry or pudding. Then you are offered liqueur. Oh, and I forgot. I left out the fruit and nut course. How careless of me. <laughs> now, there was nothing new in the mid-1800s about feasts that involved insane amounts of food. What was new, at least to Americans, was that manners now really mattered. Every meal was a minefield, rife with opportunities to make mistake after mistake in etiquette. There are many, many, many mistakes you might make. <laughs> you might, in fact, bite off your roll and show the teeth marks of your roll as you put it back on the plate. <laughs> you might try eating an apple with your hands. Well, my goodness. Uh, we know, you know then that you don't belong because you're supposed to master even how to use the fork for this. You don't talk about the food. You don't say, oh, this is yummy. You, that's, that's, that's just a little unseemly. You know, I have to say, Professor Kasson, that this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> Why are people doing this? They don't sound like a lot of fun, and that's precisely because they sound like such an exacting performance. It's a kind of trial by fork. And part of the notion <laughs> of the performance is that we're going to tell who belongs and who doesn't. Uh, these dinners are already kind of rituals of exclusivity. Right. And then in the dinner itself, it's as if it becomes a test of how habituated you are to these performances of self-control. We could liken the dinner to a courtly dance of some sense. If you know the steps, then you can relax and enjoy it. But if you don't, then you're sweating all the time. Brion Savarin, the famous French uh, writer who wrote The Physiology of Taste, said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are. We might say that the corollary of this in the 19th century was tell me how you eat and I'll tell you what you are. And this sense of how people mastered the forms of dining were what separated them from simply people who fed. So, as you recover from your Thanksgiving feast, on today's show, we are going to give you all the historical knowledge you might need to survive your next family meal. We've got the story of America's earliest restaurant chain. We'll try to understand one of the least revolutionary aspects of the American Revolution, the food. And we'll look at the political hotbed of American mealtime, school lunch. Oh, let me and no potatoes. Just ain't right like green tomatoes. Yeah, I'm waiting, palpitating with all that meat and no potatoes. Ed, you know I'm always thinking about food, and actually a lot of us are often thinking about food. But I have to admit, I have never considered food from the angle of the American Revolution. Yeah, Brian, that's not so brave for you to admit when the one day Peter's not here. But nevertheless, <laughs> the fact is that we've looked into this, as you know, and it turns out that there are a lot of implications about food and the American Revolution. That's exactly what Trudy Eden showed us. She's an early American historian, and she brought along an English cookbook from this period. A popular cookbook in the popular press. And in addition to the recipes you'd expect to see in a cookbook, it also contains a series of diagrams. So picture this. 
you have a bird's eye view of the dinner table. It's dotted with no less than 29 dishes, all laid out symmetrically. There's some familiar items, pork, asparagus, turnips, and some less familiar ones, like orange pudding and roasted larks. You've had roasted larks recently, lunch, haven't you? Actually, exactly. Yeah. We asked Trudy Eden to walk us through this meal. I think maybe the best way to approach this is by thinking of yourself as a diner and um, walking in. The table would probably have been set with all of the dishes. Not everybody ate everything that was on the table. And the hostess would not be offended if you had, say, four dishes next to you and you only ate from two. But how to decide which two dishes to eat? Today, we might think in terms of balance. You've been eating a lot of sweets lately? Then maybe I'll skip that orange pudding and go for an extra helping of the asparagus. And back when this cookbook was published, they also thought about balance. Except for them, the stakes were much higher. The 17th and 18th century, even the 19th century, was a very holistic world. So we aren't just talking about somebody's physical health. Um, We're talking about their physical health, their mental health, their level of intelligence, uh, their level of morality. It includes absolutely the whole person, and it's not just about the body. Eating the wrong thing could degrade you, the thinking went, both mentally and spiritually. On the other hand, if you ate well, you could become smarter, more cheerful, a better person all around. It was based on the theory that the body is composed of four basic humors, each combining various levels of hot, cold, wet, and dry. The goal was to maintain a balance of all four humors. If you had a cold and were an early modern person, you would say, oh my gosh, you know, my nose is running, I'm cold, I've got all this fluid coming out of my nose, and the best thing for me to do is to... Uh, maybe exercise a little bit, get some of that moisture out of my body, and eat foods that are hot and dry because that will reduce the amount of cold and moist in my system. Now, this so-called humoral, as opposed (laughs) to humorous theory, could be very specific. It wasn't simply eat more vegetables. It was eat more cucumbers with mustard, which meant that having a lot of dishes to choose from was a huge advantage. The more variety you had the more tools you had to put your body in balance. What you needed on Monday might not be what you needed on the following Monday, and what you needed in the spring wouldn't be what you needed in the summer. But if you had all of this variety, you could manipulate yourself and keep yourself in balance. And Brian, this is how we connect up with the question with which we began this segment. How do food choices connect with the American Revolution? And the answer is that people who could achieve the perfect balance were seen as the most fit to rule. It's obvious now that this way of thinking reinforced the status quo because only the wealthy had access to the variety (laughs) of food that was necessary to achieve that balance, which in turn made them fit to rule and maintain that access to food. The, The theory wasn't as great for the lower classes where it was really hard to get cucumbers and mustard. But something interesting happened when English people started colonizing the New World. The soil in America was rich and crops grew well. More people were able to own their own land and provide for themselves. While hunting had been off-limits for all but the nobility in the old world, here in the United States, anyone with a gun could go off and stalk his own dinner. 
And this widespread food security, as Trudy Eden calls it, had surprising political implications. It wasn't just the wealthy people who were food secure and who were therefore the most capable of governing the country. It was a whole huge population of people. A large portion of the country had the kind of food security, had the kind of lifestyle where they could govern themselves and be the best people they possibly could be. So if you want your rulers to be the best people, then why not a democracy? Here's the thing. The turn towards self-government wasn't a rejection of the old world way of thinking. It was an extension of it. What simply happened in the United States was that uh, more people uh, hopped over the line of food security. And so you had a larger group of people who were food secure and were entitled to um, have a say-so in their society. So if we look at the American Revolution from the perspective of food, it doesn't really look very revolutionary at all. In fact, even back in England, the ability to make correct food choices was called, wait for it, Brian, self-government. <laughs> so when colonists in America started talking about self-government in a political sense, they weren't subverting that older worldview. They were actually embracing it. I know a girl who looks like fondue. She's warm on the outside, but she's cooler than you. Helping us tell that story was Trudy Eden, an associate professor of history at the University of Northern Iowa. Her book is The Early American Table. You are what you eat. It's true what they say. Your bacon and french fries and soup of the day. You are what you eat. Your asparagus tips, your everything tasty that passes your lips. In the first part of our show, we talked a little bit about the moment in the middle of the 19th century when people here stopped eating off their knives and started using forks. Well, wouldn't you know it, it didn't take long before Americans started worrying that this whole manners thing was getting, well, a little out of control. There's a critique that boys are not growing up into the kind of manly men that they need to be. This is Abby Van Slyke, an historian at Connecticut College. Not only sort of a, a little bit of background homophobia there, um, but I think a concern, sort of what we would call a national security concern, um, that boys are not growing up into the kinds of soldiers that the country needs. This is happening in the 1880s, which as it happens is precisely when the first summer camps for boys come along. Van Slyke has written about the history of summer camps, and so we invited her on to share her thoughts about the importance of what and how summer campers have eaten. Part of what's going on at summer camps is that they're trying to get boys away from the influence of their mothers. In the imaginings of the time, mothers were keeping their boys in the parlor, keeping them clean, uh, not allowing them to have any kind of rough-and-tumble play. So camp was the antidote to that. And one of the most common environments for camps to model themselves on in the late 19th century was the army encampment, the military mm -hmm. encampment. And so mess hall, the military term, was the one that they picked up. 
And would the boys uh, help out in the kitchen? Would they help out with the cooking? Definitely. Often they've got a professional cook, either someone who has worked at a lumber camp or um, come from another venue and is cooking either in a tent or in a very rudimentary kitchen cooking over an open flame. So boys are collecting firewood, they're peeling potatoes, they're serving, and they're doing their own dishes. So the the mealtime becomes sort of a major event. So I understand that camps started admitting girls. There were girls' camps. When? Would that be the, the beginning of the 20th century? Exactly. And how did those... I presume they didn't call them mess halls. For the girls' camps, did they morph into dining rooms or did they call them mess halls? They did call them mess halls. And I think particularly in the years around World War I, there was the notion that women, too, could contribute to the war effort. Um, And so there was a tendency to still use that mess hall nomenclature. There was still, though, a very strong sense that for girls, cooking and eating at summer camp was very much related to their preparing them for their future roles as women. So in the late 19th century, when boys did the kitchen labor, um, it was understood as just pitching into part of the adventure of camping. Right. Whereas in the early 20th century, particularly the Girl Scouts articulated very clearly that this was about preparing girl campers to be more effective wives and mothers. And when I think about my days at summer camp, I really don't remember the kitchen. I remember a window opening into the kitchen and the food would just come out of it. That's a little different than what you've been describing in the first decades of the 20th century. Yeah. No, you, you are putting your finger right on the very nub of a really important change. So one of the things that happens there is that we have a shift over to a building, a new building type called a dining lodge. Um, moving away from the military analogy um, and thinking more about the dining as an experience, um, a shift to round tables, uh, smaller tables, so that now we have younger campers and they're sitting in their tent units or their cabin units. Right. Um, in some camps, there were curtains in the windows. There was this notion that maybe you're coming a little bit back around to the domestic uh, dining room as the model there. Uh, but then the relationship between the dining room and the kitchen changes entirely. So in the early 20th century, even back in the late 19th century, cooking had been very visible to campers. It had been either out in the open or it had been at one end of the of the mess hall. By the 1930s and then into the post-war period when I assume you were a camper, um, you have now a very high-tech kitchen. And they are set up precisely so that that minimizes the camper's involvement with the kitchen. In the 30s and beyond, the dining lodge where you're actually taking your meals, that room is very rustic. Yes. And in some places sort of exaggerated in its rusticity. We had you know. exaggerated rustic. That's a good way and to describe it. And then you go into it. the kitchen, it would be a completely different world uh, that you'd probably have a polished concrete floor. Um, you'd have um, stainless steel fixtures. All the equipment could have come right out of, uh, of an urban hotel. Aside from just developments in kitchen technology, what was going on culturally? I think that what we're looking at here is a is a tendency to try to create childhood as its own particular moment and to really make sure that childhood is insulated from the adult world. So that in the late 19th century, we had older campers 
and camp was really envisioned and used as a way to help them bridge into adulthood. Uh, they were learning skills. They were learning a self-reliance that in the 19th century that would help um, take them into the adult world. Beginning in the 1930s and then really ramping up um, as the baby boom took on full flower after World War II, the notion is that camp is now for a much younger crowd and that the activities there should be very, very distinct um, from what happens in the world of adults. And that one way of doing that at camp is to insulate kids from the work of adults, that kids play at camp, adults work at camp. Well, just to bring things up to these days, I mean, when I think of the evolution of meals in general, I think of the evolution, even in my own lifetime, from, you know, three pretty fixed meal times a day to the power bar. Yeah. There's really not that many places left in American society where large groups of people can be expected to sit down. Uh, I, I guess the cruise ship is the other last. Or a prison. Or a prison. That's right. So why do you think summer camps hold on to that? Is it that bonding experience? Oh, I think I think that's a huge part of it. I, I think at most camps, it's the one time when the whole camp gets together. Yeah. Um, I think at most meal times, there's there's a ritual beyond the meal, right? That the, it's the time for announcements. It's a time for right. song. Right. And it is really a time to reinforce the um, really the collective identity of the camp. You know, many, particularly the more conventional, you know, more traditional summer camps really think an important part of what they're doing is um, is helping people learn how to get along with one another. Yeah. And I think in some ways they are bulwarks for the mealtime, understanding that mealtime is always more than just food. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. You've whetted my appetite and it's uh, been very instructive. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Abby Van Slyke is a professor at Connecticut College and author of A Manufactured Wilderness, Summer Camps and the Shaping of American Youth. Now, as it turns out, I eat a lot of meals outside of the home because I travel a lot. But a strange facet of modern life is that those meals have a strange consistency to them, actually a reassuring consistency. Wherever I am in the country, I know that I can go to Panera and have the Sierra turkey sandwich (laughs) and have the chicken with wild rice side and wash it all down with an iced tea that I know is going to taste exactly the way it did the last time I went there. Now, a lot of people would probably peg the beginning of the standardized way of eating to the middle of the 20th century with the advent of fast food. But those people would be wrong. I'm one of them. (laughs) Reporter Meg Kramer has the story of America's first chain restaurant, an innovation of, get this, the 1870s, known as the Harvey House. In its early days, railway travel out west was an unpleasant business. People were treated a lot like cargo— Railroad companies just kind of put them on the train and sent them off. Trips could take up to a week. But of all the indignities of rail travel, smoke and dust in the cars, cramped quarters, dizzying climbs through the mountains, the most miserable part was the food. Well, it might disgust your listeners if I described it really well, uh, because honestly, um, in those days, the railroads only grudgingly carried passengers. Their motto was, freight doesn't complain. This is Stephen Freed 
author of Appetite for America. And um, basically the food that people ate in the West on trains, there were no dining cars in the West, just restaurants at the train stations, uh, was considered so terrible that the New York Times suggested at one point that there was more danger eating the food than there was from train wrecks and fires in the West. The exasperating coffee, which naturally unfit for a Christian to drink, is served so scalding hot as to make that feat impossible. This is how the New York Times described rail food in 1873. The leathery beefsteak swimming in grease, the homicidal biscuits, the antediluvian sandwiches, the indescribable pies, all these inflictions the traveler has endured, until a trip of any length through this happy land has come to present to his desperate mind the alternative of dyspepsia or starvation. Under these circumstances, anyone with a halfway decent biscuit recipe could have run a profitable restaurant. But there was one guy who made it his business to do it best, Fred Harvey. Harvey worked in a Kansas railroad office, but he also had experience working in restaurants in New York and New Orleans. So he knew what a good meal could be. In 1876, Harvey opened a small lunchroom for passengers on the second floor of the train depot in Topeka, Kansas. He shipped in specially roasted coffee and fresh ingredients and cut bigger slices of pie than anyone else. It was a success, and a few years later, he cut a deal with the Santa Fe Railroad to run all the restaurants along the line. Passengers could get a Harvey House meal every hundred miles, and Fred Harvey could expect a train full of customers right on schedule. Now, if what you're imagining is a folksy, old Western kind of place, like a Cracker Barrel, you're totally wrong. The Harvey Houses had class. There was a white tablecloth dining room with imported linens, Crystal, silver, you know, perfect hand-done service attached to what would look to you today like a diner with, with curved counters and stools and some uh, tables where people ordered a la carte and then takeout coffee. When the Santa Fe Railroad opened service to Los Angeles in 1887, it advertised meals by Fred Harvey all the way. Whenever a new Harvey House opened, it changed the character of a town. This might be the first restaurant that anyone in that town had ever been to. Harvey Houses hosted parties and Friday night socials, and one of the biggest changes was that every restaurant came with a new team of Harvey girls. First come the plate, then the cup and sassy. The knife and fork and here's your spoon, the nappy by the glassy. That song is from the 1946 Hollywood musical The Harvey Girls, starring Judy Garland as a waitress in one of Fred Harvey's restaurants. Beginning in the 1880s, thousands of single white women were recruited for this job. They traveled hundreds of miles from eastern and midwestern states to work in Harvey houses. In a lot of frontier towns, men outnumbered women two to one. A train full of waitresses was a big deal. Here's Freed again. I mean, think of any social situation you've ever been in where everybody's already dated everybody in the social situation. When somebody new comes into that social situation, it's really big news, whether it's in an office or at school or something like that. So imagine a regular system that delivered new single people to these towns, in many cases very small towns. Uh, there was an incredible amount of expectation when the new Harvey girls came to town. And what the Harvey girls were serving was incredible. Rare steak, Blue Point oysters, almond souffle pudding, 
and the perfect cup of coffee. Some of the best food you could find anywhere in America was being served at Harvey houses in places like Dodge City, Kansas, a town with more cows than people. The Harvey House system was the first chain of anything that spread across America. His infrastructure was ready-made. Hundreds of miles of track delivered lobster, steak, and fresh fruit right to his kitchens in refrigerated cars. Nobody else in the business could operate on this scale. In one year alone, he used 88 train cars just to move potatoes. He served thousands of customers every day, basically every passenger on the Santa Fe Railroad. And every meal had to meet the Fred Harvey standard. Their goal was to be really high-end, to have everything perfect, to have the service be perfect. And perfect service was not something that was really available much in America, except to rich people. And part of what was interesting about the Harvey story, in many ways, is that he was really the first person to serve democratically, in that, you know, the people on the trains came from all backgrounds, first class, second class, all classes. They had to serve people who couldn't speak English. They had to serve people who had never eaten a restaurant meal before as well as people who had had, you know, chefs taking care of them their whole lives. Fred Harvey's service was legendary, and railroad travel throughout the Southwest became a lot easier to stomach. But Fred Harvey did more than just serve good food. He helped to make the frontier a nice place to be. Americans started going on vacations, not to Europe, but to Arizona. I mean, there's something very perfect about the idea of building a train line to the edge of the Grand Canyon. So that instead of having to hike there... (laughs) You could take a train there and you could sit in a four-star restaurant right at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And that's very much what the Harvey Company always stood for, so that people could have that experience of the unfolding West in comfort. Fred Harvey saw a whole nation on the move. And he knew that when people left home, they wanted more than the basics. They wanted comfort, a decent meal, and a good cup of coffee. And that's what we expect now when we travel throughout America that wherever we're going, we can find everything we need along the way. That's reporter Meg Kramer. You can have a look at some Harvey House menus on our website, backstoryradio.org. Yeah, Brian, I felt really vindicated that uh, almost everything in significant about the 20th century began in the 19th. And as soon as people are leaving home and looking for you know, comfort, yes, looking for a little bit of certainty, Uh, standardization emerges as a result. In the 21st century, it's coming full circle. It's not enough to have standardization, which we've grown to distrust. Now it has to be standardization that bespeaks the language of the locale. So Kentucky Fried Chicken, the Boston Market, we create little micro-environments, a little bit of Seattle in every Starbucks, a little bit of Tennessee in every Cracker Barrel. So the Harvey House, the whole idea of a guaranteed experience is the beginning of what we live for today, is that we know not only what the food's going to taste like, but what it's going to be like when we get out of our car, get off the train, get off the plane, and walk into one of these restaurants. And it's a dirty little secret of the modern era that we like that. You know, Ed, listening to that piece, I was thinking about my own experience with expectations for food. And... We came of age in a generation where everything was standardized. That's that's just what we expected. You had your McDonald's, you had your Howard Johnson's. And so by the time I was an adult, when I went a-traveling, I was looking for local color, you know, that diner that had the blue plate special. So authentic. Exactly. And 
I remember traveling as a young adult, actually in your neck of the woods, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, North Carolina. I was traveling with my friend, a Japanese-American, Kaneko, and her British husband, and they kept vetoing all my spots that I thought I'd find local <laughs> color. And I finally said, hey, what's up? And Kaneko said, you know, we've had some really bad experiences at these local restaurants. And of course, she wasn't just referring to the food. What she meant was that she hadn't been served. She had actually been insulted in wow. another one. And to her, standardization meant not only predictable food, it meant predictable service of that food, and it meant a kind of social norm that these chains really needed to pursue the transcended local social practices. And I really learned a lot from that moment. We're talking today about the history of mealtime in America, and now we're going to take the show to school. Last year, the National School Lunch Program served more than 31 million children a day. But looking at the program's origins, it's clear that children's interests haven't always been what's driving the program. During the Great Depression, farm prices plummeted. Corn, hogs, wheat, the prices just kept going down, down, down. So one of the things the government did was take crops and livestock off the market. It was called buying surplus. But what do you do if you're the government and you have all this extra food? Well, as we know, in the Great Depression, there were also a lot of hungry kids in America. So why don't you just send the food to their schools? And it sounds like a great idea, but historian Susan Levine told me that from the children's perspective, there was a small glitch in this wonderful plan. Part of the glitch is that only certain foods are declared to be surplus. And so you got, in the 30s, a real imbalance in what kinds of foods were available. So, for example, one year um, schools might get a ton of apricots or almonds, and the next year they might get a lot of eggs or olives. And they're really very entertaining stories uh, from the school lunch coordinators about how there's so many apples they wouldn't eat them and they'd end up in the toilet and, you know, that, you know, kids won't eat these olives and kids won't eat um, certain What's kinds of food. What's the matter with kids so they... today they won't eat olives? <laughs> right. Who wouldn't want to have, like, five hard-boiled <laughs> eggs every day? Uh, well, well, one of the things that the Department of Agriculture did – uh, it, at that time, there was within the Department of Agriculture a section called the Bureau of Home Economics, and this was the bureau that developed all the recipes for the school lunch programs, and they would develop, you know, eight kinds of different egg dishes that you could serve to, you know, 300 kids. Um, and they worked very hard at kind of figuring out the menus and the recipes to use a lot of these commodities. So... After World War II, you have this uh, sort of newly born system right. with a huge bureaucracy behind it and the expectation that the federal government's going to help sort of um, supply the foods for our, our children. Well, what happens in the decades after World War II? Well, let's back up a little bit because the school lunch becomes a federal program in 1946. But really before the war was over, um, there began to be a debate in Congress about what to do 
after the war, what to do with these programs. There's several different plans that come forward. One is to run it through the commissioner of education. There wasn't yet a department of education. The Department of Agriculture, of course, didn't want that. They wanted to keep control of the program, as did a lot of congressional representatives, especially from the South. And the guy in Congress, Richard Russell, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, from Georgia. um, From Georgia, senator Mm -hmm. from Georgia, considered himself to be the father of the school lunch program. He was a conservative Democrat. He was a segregationist. And one of the things about him that was interesting was that he actually understood poverty. Um, and he understood the plight of farmers, in a certain sense, both black and white. Um, and so it didn't bother him that um, the federal government should aid in the farm economy. But if you start to get into the schools, then you really go to the heart of Southern segregation. And this is where the states um, really drew the line and they didn't want the federal government to come anywhere near the schools because they really feared And I think rightly so that the federal government would begin to dismantle their system of segregation. It would begin to demand some kind of equality. So the USDA would have been seen as a relatively benign force by the advocates of states' rights because it was basically agriculture. Um, Right, exactly. And and the the Southern conservatives were right that this was Mm -hmm. kind of an entree in a way of the federal government to have leverage over the schools of the South. Right, exactly. And so in the the late 60s, early 70s, things begin to change is my understanding. Right. Under Nixon, the school lunch program expanded and um, there was a federal mandate that all poor kids had to get free lunch. Um, And that meant that the local school districts had to supply free lunches. Now, they still got federal free food, but the food was not the only cost of the lunch. You have to cook it and you have to have kitchens and people to cook it. And this caused them considerable problems because the way that they had been financing free lunches up until then was to basically, you know, charge kids who could afford it and use that with the federal subsidies. Um, But they couldn't raise the prices too much or kids would stop buying the lunch. The kids who could afford it would stop buying and then their whole budget would collapse. So there was a big debate in the 70s about how to pay for the school, you know, free lunches. Um, and the states were supposed to put in matching funds. That was part of the original legislation. But now the states actually had to kick in their own matching funds. And so how did people respond to that tension? I mean, if it's a federal mandate, you have to do it. You can't say there's no such thing as a free lunch. There has to be, right? Right. It's not free. And one of the interesting things is that then the school lunch reformers start to think about, well, maybe we should bring in private you know, food service companies to fix lunches because they're offering to do it for less and in fact, that's largely what happens is that these major national food service corporations, which are just beginning to expand in those years, um, they begin to operate school lunch programs. And that's, is that kind of where we are today? That's sort pretty of the, much where we are now, yeah. And now you've got an even newer, you know, sort of the food movement, which is questioning a lot of the infrastructure of the school lunch programs. 
and whether these food service corporations can really serve healthy meals. I mean, are the McNuggets really healthy and so forth? But one of the things that I think a lot of food critics now don't question is how the whole system is funded and who pays for it. So that if you decide you want to get it out of the Department of Agriculture, say you think the Department of Agriculture really only has farmers' interests at heart, not kids' interests, where are you going to put it? You know, who has the political clout to really keep this program going? And that's a serious question. Susan Levine is a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of School Lunch Politics, The Surprising History of America's Favorite Welfare Program. If you're just joining us, this is Backstory, and we're talking today about the history of American meal habits. As we do each week, We've been fielding questions from listeners on BackstoryRadio.org and on Facebook. Today, we've invited a few of those questioners to join us on the phone. Our first question comes from Mike in Washington, D.C. Mike, we're talking about meals and eating today. You have something to put on the menu? I do indeed. My question is, When and why in American eating culture did we switch from having the major meal of the day in the afternoon to having the major meal of the day as dinner? Ah, good question. It's a very gradual change. It begins in the 19th century, but it it would have persisted really into the 20th century depending on what kind of work people are doing. Historians make a distinction between two basic kinds of work task-oriented and time-oriented. Task-oriented, you do the work. When you're done, you're finished. Time-oriented, you just keep working as long (laughs) as the clock is running, right? And so on the farm, it's task-oriented, which means it's highly variable across the year. And it means also you would start very early because the, the livestock need to be fed or milked early on. So it's because of the task. As a result of that, very often you would get as much of the work done as you could while you were into it and then have your main meal of the day after that. Now, there would still be chores to do after meals. I'm talking mainly about a family-owned farm, okay? You move to town, either into an office or to a factory. It's a different animal. You are judged by the clock, and you are not going to be able to determine when you eat, and you're not going to be able to determine how long you eat. You are fitting into a larger machine. And you're not going to have your family around you, right, Ed? Exactly. And you're not going to have access to a kitchen, so you're going to be bringing your food with you, and it might be something you could fit into, a, say, a lunch pail. It would be something that you could bring with you that you could eat relatively quickly and then get back to work. Now, that's a kind of very logical and unromanticized interpretation. What would you think of that, Mike? Uh, actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, Mike, demographic, yeah. when do you eat uh, your—do you have a major meal today? And uh, if you have one, when do you eat it? I actually eat mine in the afternoon uh, just because of how my work schedule works. It's actually easy for me just to, to eat it in the middle of the day because uh, my nights are pretty crazy. So, so what is your work, if I may ask? I work for uh, Voice of America. I actually work in the Mandarin department, so my day uh, starts pretty early when things are closing down in, in China, um, and then I spend a lot of night trying to keep up on stories, so when I come in the next morning, I know what's going on. 
Well, what you're doing is, is so, it's funny, you're so cosmopolitan that you're old-fashioned. Exactly. Th- th- this is what we call task-oriented rather than time-oriented organization of your day, right? Because you're living in two different time zones, you're actually structuring your consumption of food around the work that you need to do. Uh, and throughout human history, this is the way that things would have been done. We eat when it's appropriate to eat. We don't eat when it's your lunch break, <laughs> you know, yeah. when it's right. orchestra. Right. And what's more, Mike, you've proven that radio is a pre-industrial technology. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate you calling us, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our next question comes from Brooke in Chicago. Hi. Um, so my question is, you know, I feel like industrialization, globalization, and the information age have all collided to make eating vastly more complicated than it used to be for my grandma's generation and for generations before that. You know, when I'm going to the grocery store, I'm thinking about so many different things. BPAs, factory farms, pesticides, is it locally grown? Does it contain whole grains? Does being certified organic really make a difference? And I'm wondering if all of those sort of ethical and political implications are a new thing. Well, I certainly think in the way that you described them, Brooke, they are. So let's think about it. Did it used to be simpler to consider what we ate? What do you think, Brad? How recent is this that we've considered the sort of things that Brooke's asking about? Well, you know, I think we've been worrying about our food and its sources for at least a century, Brooke. And I hate to tell you, but I think about your hometown, Chicago, Illinois, uh, oh, yeah. When I think about people worrying about the food, uh, yeah. the whole movement for pure food centered in many ways in Chicago. Why? Because that was the heart of the meatpacking industry. Right. Uh, and that novel by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, during what was known as the progressive era in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, those folks were very worried about Uh, what people were eating, and what corporate America was trying to do to cut corners, save money. And, you know, the verb they used was adulterate. They were worried about adulterated food. It wasn't just, I don't mean to pick on the meat packers, it was people who sold margarines. What was this kind of artificial product? I mean, the Velveeta of its time— Margarine, oleo margarine, you know, was that really healthy? Yeah, and that, that resulting act from that fear of adulteration, Brian, was called the Pure Food and Drug Act <laughs> of 1906. That's right. Which, by its very nature, suggests there was a time when food was pure. Let's think about when that right. might have been. It was any time that you could basically look the food you're ready to eat in the eye <laughs> before you <laughs> slaughtered it. Because as soon as it starts being remote... Who knows where that food has been? So in many ways, the evolution of transportation went hand-in-hand with the the distribution and little suspicion about food. Even before this, in the antebellum period, before the Civil War, they're worried not so much about unpure food as unhealthy food. When you can eat as much as you can in this country— and that's been, we've been virtually unique in world history in having so much to eat— you begin to worry, uh, are we becoming indolent? Are we becoming corpulent? Are we becoming really just sort of clogged up with all this meat that we could be eating? And so the idea comes, you know what we really need to really turn things around? 
graham crackers. That's one of the early great health foods is, a, is the graham cracker. I don't know if, they, if, if there's kind of the sparkly sugar on it. I'm guessing it was a more standardized sort of thing. So it's ironic that as soon as we have the technology to bring ourselves other kinds of food, we start worrying about it. So, Brooke, why do you worry about food? What, what actually brings you to this question? You know, it, it actually stemmed in part, and I think you sort of answered my other question, was that my grandma passed away earlier this year, and we all gathered over the summer to sort of celebrate her life, and we were going through her recipe book. And, you know, my grandma grew up in Nebraska during the Great Depression, so casseroles were essentially 90% of, of what they were cooking at that time, and her recipe books definitely uh, reflected that. And at some point, we noted that every single recipe seemed to involve a can of mushroom soup. (laughs) And we came across a recipe for something called China Burger. And I thought, you know, here at last is a recipe that won't involve a cream of mushroom soup, you know, China Burger. Um, But even this one was uh, ground beef, onion, celery, mushroom soup, rice, soy sauce, put uh, Chinese noodles over the top. Um, I love that dish. <laughs> and that was as complicated as it got. Yeah, so Brooke, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, guessing you know, that uh, cream of mushroom didn't play a role in desserts, I hope. No, no, that was jello. That was Describe some of those jello molds for us. Oh, uh, well, you know, I, I don't recall the molds, but I do recall from my childhood, Grandma making something that, that we called Midwestern salad. I don't know if that's what she called it. And it was uh, green jello with uh, cheddar cheese shredded oh. on top. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. This is really terrible. Are we allowed <laughs> to say that on radio, Ed? Green jello with I, I cheddar cheese? I, I'm, now, afraid, yeah. I'm afraid we're going to have to edit that out, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that this has given you some sense that we're going to always be worrying about this in different kinds of ways. And there are worse things than worrying about what's on the back of the label. Other part might be on how do you actually snap the neck of that chicken. <laughs> so uh, this is a yeah, product Brooke, of our own time. Brooke, you can rest easy knowing that I will be worrying about green jello and cheddar cheese for the rest <laughs> of the day. Thank you so I'm much. I'm glad I've given you that image to grapple with. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Brooke. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's about all the show we've got room for today. But if you're still hungry, there's more on today's topic at BackstoryRadio.org. You'll also find all of our old shows there, including one on the history of Thanksgiving itself. We'll be back next week, and Peter Onuf will be back with us, so don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Jess Ingebretson, Eric Minnell, and Allison Quantz. Our staff also includes Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Kelly Jones. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Wyndham. Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day.
Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.